I'm Monica Johnson, and this is Brooklyn Calling. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Brooklyn Calling. Um, this is where we talk about artists and libraries and social justice, among other things. Uh, Marshall and I are normally your hosts, but today I'm here with Brooklyn curator Jan Descartes. Um, she and I are both artists who work at Brooklyn Inc., an arts nonprofit located in Brooklyn, New York, on the unceded land of the Munsley Lenape people. And we created Brooklyn Calling to explore art making as a tool for community engagement and for social change. And we do this by talking directly with artists and activists in the field. And we're also interested in finding out new aspects of material culture and how art interacts with social justice. So today, our fantastic guest is Shana Ajid, who is an artist, designer, teacher, and organizer, whose work focuses on relationships of power and difference in visual, social, and political cultures. Her books and prints combine image, text, and form to explore these through narratives of desire, landscape, and history. His work has been shown at the New York Center for Book Arts, the Minnesota Center for Book Arts, the Hamilton Woodtype Museum, and other venues. His artist books are in the collection of the Walker Arts Center, New York Public Library, and the Library of Congress, among many others. Um, she is also a collaborative design researcher and practitioner working with organizations to create systems and infrastructures towards self-determination and a longtime member of Critical Resistance. Shana is an associate professor at Parsons School of Design, the new school in New York City. And I'm so excited to welcome you, Shana. Hello. How are you today? Hello. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for this invitation. Let's dive in. I have I really am interested to know more about Shana, your history with Bookland. Um, I joined Bookland staff in 2018, and of course our history predates that. Um, I think it, the origins are dated at like 1999. I'm just I would love to know how you first discovered Bookland or how Bookland discovered you. And I would love to hear any stories you you would want to share about what that was like. Um, thanks, Monica. So that's, uh, I, I'm trying to remember how I found out about Bookland in the first place. And the truth is, I do not remember, but probably the internet. But what <laughs> I can tell you is that I was in my very first year as a college teacher. I had gotten out of a graduate program. I went to California College of the Arts, where I studied with Betsy Davids. Um, and had gone to grad school largely because I really wanted to teach. Um, and an artist friend of mine, Ashley Hunt, essentially said, listen, you should just go make art for two years and see if it's what you want to do. And so I went and I made art for two years. And I stayed for an extra year um, to do a, a second degree in visual and critical studies and decided it was definitely what I wanted to do. Uh, and I really, really wanted to be a teacher. Um, and so I got very lucky. The person who I'd actually learned printmaking from, Chris Phillips at Sarah Lawrence College, invited me to come be a, a guest teacher there for a year, 
when I got out of grad school. And this was back in 2005. Um, and so I taught a couple of classes at Sarah Lawrence. And um, the, the structure there is interesting. All classes or the majority of classes are year long. So you really get to be with students for a long time. Um, mm. And so I taught an intro to artist books class. And I presume, but I'm guessing, that when I was looking for people to come talk to us about books, that I found Bookland that way. And Jamie Moncacci, I think is how you say Jamie's last yep. name. Yeah. Jamie came up with like a, I don't know, like a like a suitcase on rollers um, <laughs> full of books. <laughs> there was something about what was in that suitcase that Jamie unpacked that was riveting to me. Um, and I'm not exaggerating. It was really like a different way of thinking about these kinds of intersections of political work that I was, you know, doing in my life around healthcare, um, HIV AIDS in particular, um, and increasingly around prisons and policing, um, and uh, just these really sort of incredible forms and structures and, and ways that people were bringing those things together in ways that I really hadn't seen up to that point. Um, anyway, so Jamie was like, you know, giving the Bookland spiel, we do this, we do this, we do this. And one of the things she said was that Bookland represented artists. And I was like, it was like mm. everything I could do not to be like, you do? What? Right? Because I was like trying to be the teacher. So anyway, afterwards, I was like, I heard you say this thing. Is that true? I made this book when I was in graduate school that I would be really interested in. I don't know, just because I had auditioned a book and then didn't have any idea what to do with it because I didn't have any idea what to do with it. And the book that I had auditioned was this book called Snitch. Um, and it's a mm. screen printed pop-up book about surveillance. And so Jamie gave me, I think gave me Marshall's contact information. Um, and I reached out to Marshall. I think I emailed him and I didn't hear back. And then I emailed him again and I didn't hear back. But eventually he wrote me back and was like, fine, if you want to show me the book, like come to Greenpoint. I went to Greenpoint to old pencil factory. Um, and I came in and I showed him the book, you know, and he looked at it. And I was like, just praying none of the mechanisms would like break while he was looking at it. And he made uh -huh. it through the whole book. Nothing broke. And at the end, he was like, you know, I really wasn't going to get back to you because I hate pop-up books. He was like, but this is great. This is really great. Mm. And like, I think right there and then he was, you know, and he talked as Marshall does about like the essentially sort of the political tone of the book. Um, the book tries through pop-up to, in a lot of artists at the time in the late 90s, early 2000s were making work that kind of um, subjected people who might not normally be subjected to surveillance to surveillance. What I was interested in was having the viewer think about what surveillance did for them in terms of securing the power of whiteness, the power of being a gentrifier, the power of essentially um, the power of observation in order to secure class and race um, and sort of gender and sexuality status. Um, and so what the book was trying to do was use these pop-up mechanisms to force the viewer into the position of being the person doing the surveillance um, and to not be able to step away from that and the questions that that created. And so that started a sort of conversation with Marshall about the value and importance of politics and of organizing and activism um, through artist books as a form. 
I love that story. It's so it, it it makes perfect sense, and it and it also sounds like um it sounds like who I who I've come to know as my colleague and my friend Marshall Weber, as well. Um, when he gets it, he gets it, and sometimes he just takes a little moment to get there. I'm also surprised, I have to say, and I am I am indirectly talking directly to you, Marshall Weber, as you listen to this at some point. I am surprised that with all of our observations about artist books being children's books for adults, which we are sure to say at least one time in every podcast, why pop-up books wouldn't have an instinctive register? But but that that's a conversation for another podcast, I think. And and also, I, I'm looking online. We do have Snitch on our website, um, and we'll be sure to include that in the show notes. And I see also that um, it was distributed to 17 different institutional collections. And among them, I see like Harvard, Stanford, Oberlin, Bucknell, um, University of Miami, Walker Art Center, University of Southern California. So uh, Marshall was certain, certainly not alone in um, appreciating your work. Thank you. And I, w- I will say too, that one of the things that I learned from that, that first conversation, and I ended up having uh, this relationship with Marshall and with, um, with Felice for a long time. And since I think with Jan and, and with um, uh, Belden, um, just this experience of being a Brooklyn artist where you get to talk about work in progress, like clearly Snitch was not in, pro- in progress at that point. Um, it was done and I was, you know, in the process of trying to addition it. Um, but I now, when I make books, I have this like secret in my back pocket that when I get to a place where I'm like, I don't know what choice to make about this. And I need to think Mm. about this as something that is both about the, you know, the material and the idea of the book, but also about what's sort of, um, viable so that something is not so fragile, for instance, that it can't be used and used a lot. Like those kinds of things, I think. Um, are some of the kind of amazing conversations that I've been able to have with the curators and folks at Brooklyn over the years since since that time. So two um, of your recent books, um, Park Factors, um, which is an accordion fold book with a removable spine uh, and Ground Rules, an accordion fold book that has three sections um, involve the passing of your mother. Call a Wrecking Ball to Make a Window is a map book that tracks your movements in New York City alongside that of the artist, writer, and activist David Wanarovich, which also involves his absence. Um, also looking through works, um, earlier works, such as The Disappearance of Philip Devine, um, which also involves um, a passing and an absence. Would you be able to talk about the, the role of loss in your work? Um, Jan, that question's amazing. Uh, and I hadn't really <laughs> thought about how present <laughs> death is in my work, even like before <laughs> this very obvious moment of the, the more recent pieces about my mom. Um, okay, so so I actually want to talk about the disappearance of Philip Divine for a second since you brought that in. And that was a, a piece that I made. It's a screen print. It's just a simple two-color screen print. And I made it actually just after I finished that graduate degree I was talking about before. And I had written my master's thesis about representation, representations made um, of high profile killings of um, folks of color and queer people in particular that are generally referred to as hate crimes. And um, 
some of my political organizing, uh, most of my political organizing at this point is working to abolish the prison industrial complex. Um, and in doing that, one of the things that I grapple with, that that movement grapples with, is how to address or prevent harm. Um, and and in particular, one of the things that I wrestle with, um, that both as a person in the world and I guess as an organizer, um, is this really complicated mix of the kinds of violence that happen against people through sort of the enforcement of white supremacy and um, patriarchy and other things, um, and how how we can address those in ways that don't just kind of uh, rely on systems that also uphold um, white supremacy and patriarchy and heteronormativity and the rest. And part of my thinking when I was working on um, that master's thesis was about the visual culture that gets produced in relationship to these really high profile murders. Um, and one of the things I looked at was the films that had been made in relationship to the, the murder of Brandon Tina, who um, was a young trans man um, uh, who was raped and then uh, when he reported the rape, later murdered by people who had been his friends. And when he was killed, um, he was with uh, two other people. Um, and one of those people, Philip Devine, was uh, also a young person, a young Black man who was um, on the scene uh, when the people who killed uh, Brandantina, who are you know now infamous for killing Brandantina, um, came to the house. Um, and when the movie Boys Don't Cry was made, which um, starred Hilary Swank as Brandantina, um, the makers of the film decided that it was too complicated to figure out how to explain who Philip Devine was in the narrative arc of the story. So they just cut him out. But what struck me was the sort of overlap between what sort of quickly became a kind of acceptable, tragic representation of this white trans guy um, and what was required to be removed from that story to make it acceptable in that way mm -hmm. and what was created and made present in that story. So if you've not seen Boys Don't Cry, there's a scene where Brandon Tina, who is at that point passing as a man, um, picks up a baby and everyone's like, so all the women are like so surprised that he is like so natural with this baby, right? So there are these like mm -hmm. incredibly norm, like normalizing moments that are meant to sort of um, raise this question of his gender. So all of this is to say that that print, The Disappearance of Philip Devine, um, was me trying to think about how do we, how do we produce stories and especially um, where, where they're overlapping, um, there are overlapping issues around oppression and privilege. How do we end up producing stories that reproduce one particular way of thinking about sort of the order of the world and how things ought to be or how things might be? Um, and how do the lives often of white people get privileged uh, in the way those stories get told? Um, and I think that last piece is sort of a theme 
of my work. And I should say here that I am white, I grew up middle class, um, I'm trans identified and queer. Um, and that for me, being able to um, be a person who works for liberation uh, means being able to think about how to how to orient to all of those pieces of my own identity and, and also understand the ways that those privileges function in my own life. And how that impacts visual culture has been a really big part of, um, of my work. I think that it's become intensely uh, personal in moments. And Jan, I guess this maybe is a way of trying to answer the question you actually asked about absence and loss, um, which is that I, I don't know, but my best guess is that the stories both of my own um, family have been deeply shaped by loss and absence, by stories of people that are unknown or untellable. Um, and then my, my own kind of just uh, coming up in the world that came out as queer when I was 14. Uh, it was uh, the very early 90s, and I came out into a world where everyone around me was sick and dying. And it just deeply shaped my understanding of what is at stake um, in politics and in identity. Um, and I think it also created a kind of um, importance to the ways that uh, we build relationships that actually sustain us in the world. Shana, I just want to say thank you for sharing all that. And I, I said this before we started, I'm always thinking of ways to have clarifying questions and their main, I feel like just listening to you a little bit longer, you have clarified so much to me and create such a strong case for sometimes listening is the best path to clarity. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to thank you for sharing that. I was thinking a lot about how the absence is also creating this presence, which I think is really beautiful in your work. And then I was thinking a lot about your work with, um, uh, prison abolition and how that is also addressing absence and loss um, in, in folks' lives. And I wondered um, how does prison abolition kind of fit into um, the work that you make? As you were talking, Jan, I was thinking um, my friend Emily Drabinsky, who is a librarian, um, said to me many years ago, this thing that's never left me. She said, you know, I think we probably really only ever have one or two good questions. We just find ways to ask them over and over again mm. differently. And I feel like this was like a librarian insight that I have been deeply grateful for um, for many, many years, uh, both as an artist and as a teacher, but I think also as an organizer. Um, and I, I tend to think of my artwork um, as something that I do in really deeply solitary ways. Like I tend not to um, do a lot of collaborative work in my artist books work, um, but I, I do feel like it's very much in conversation with how, it's like a way that I'm trying to make sense of the world, um, which I guess is what all of us are doing all the time. But, um, but I think that to me, one of the most critical pieces of doing the work of prison industrial complex abolition um, is about recognizing what it is that people make and build and do together to create possibilities for um, 
you know, I think different people name it different things, whether it's safety or freedom um, or a capacity to live uh, with peace. Um, but I think that the kinds of questions that I come back to over and over again have to do with how we navigate the troubles of the world uh, without presuming that the only way to live well together is for all those troubles to go away um, and and really to be more invested in asking really complicated questions um, in really creative ways. And so to me, like the, the questions that are at the center of um, probably all my work, but uh, like call a wrecking ball to make a window, for instance, or I think even uh, park factors and ground rules have to do with like how do we how do we figure out ways of being in the world that are um, full of possibility without being simple or without denying complexity um, and mess and and that to me is also very much the work of abolition right we know that people make mistakes we know that people hurt each other um, we know all of these things and and I would also argue that we know that um, that there are uh, structures of power, like I was saying before, um, racism, white supremacy, patriarchy, etc., um, that are that are also sort of built in harm and violence. And so we can't address harm and violence without uh, also addressing those larger systems. And we certainly can't address them through those larger systems. And so I think for me, the overlaps um, have to do with um, recognizing that. Uh, all the kinds of creative work we do in the world have to do with trying to wrestle with these questions and understand them differently um, and test things out and try um, out and try on different ways of doing things. Um, and it, I mean, one of the things I'm thinking about with Call a Wrecking Ball to Make a Window, which I think of always as having essentially sort of three characters. So there's me, um, there's David Wonorovich, and then there's Manhattan um, as a kind of third character in that book. Um, and the story of Manhattan came into it because it was too simple for me to keep romanticizing this idea of David Wonorovich as a figure um, and as a, you know, the way that I entered into that book was trying to think about my own queer desire as a trans person um, and where that got complicated along the way for me. Um, especially as I started to appear in the world more and more as someone who passed and read as male and how that felt like it stripped from me another sort of element of being recognizable as queer and where that turned in terms of how it started making me think about desire and who looked at me and who didn't look at me and, uh, you know, what was legible and what was not. Um, and in all of that, it became really easy to have this kind of romantic attachment to ideas of queerness that probably haven't actually existed for anyone ever, but especially um, not for folks who haven't had access to queer community for all kinds of reasons, um, including you know, racism and classism. Um, and so for me, it became really important to kind of think about the ways in which Manhattan as a geological space and as a political space and a cultural space could be a way to think about what is always operating behind how we learn how to see one another, how we learn how to talk to one another, um, and really sort of how we navigate 
um, building spaces of freedom, which sounds super cheesy, but I, I mean it in a very, in a very grounded way. Um, and so for me, that meant thinking about the colonial history of the, of the space. It meant thinking about the built history of the space, um, about the, 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 um, history of war here. Um, and that became a kind of way to understand these kind of massive systems, like these massive systems of things like imprisonment or, um, colonization, um, while also kind of uh, being able to imagine something more intimate and, um, and kind, like desire. Shana, I wonder if you could talk a bit about David Wanarovich, just as, as the person he was and how, how you discovered it, his work, assuming that his timeline looks like ended right around the time I think you were saying you came out, um, he passed away in 1992 of AIDS, um, which I think was set around when you were 14 and said that you came out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm interested to know like where, like what was the inter- intersection and how, how his biography or his work really grabbed you? I took this writing class while I was in graduate school with Cooley and um, in it, we read um, In the Shadow of the American Dream, which is um, the sort of transcribed and edited diaries of, of Wonorovich. Um, and it completely transformed things. And I think it, you know, it overlapped with a time when I was coming out as trans. Um, it overlapped with a time when I was making some very complicated decisions about my body um, and where all of these other things started to unfold. And the diary has in it um, just stories from his literally walking around the city. And what I ended up doing ultimately, and I, I made Wrecking Ball later, but what I ended up doing um, was going through the book and tracing every instance where he talks about moving around the city or in and out of the city. And that became sort of the, the basis of Call a Wrecking Ball to Make a Window, where I overlapped those stories with my own um, and kind of uh, tried to find a way to trace our movements through the city in a way that made it difficult to ascertain whose movements were whose. And this was sort of where that that need to be able to problematize and not just romanticize that relationship of my idea of him um, became so important. But I think what I know, what I found out while I was beginning to read him, becoming increasingly obsessed with him, was that uh, when I was 14, I worked at this place called The Pink Zone. We sold t-shirts and postcards and basically anything with a rainbow or a pink triangle on it. And there was a postcard we had on that postcard rack that was, um, and I I write about it in Color Wrecking Ball to Make a Window, that was um, a picture of a man um, running across a map and the man is on fire. And I was completely taken by it. And I don't know if I just was never smart enough to flip it over and read what it said on the back, but I had no idea that it was made by the artist David Wonorovich. But it stayed in my mind forever and ever and ever. And I, obs- I obsessed over it. And there I was in graduate school going through this you know, work that had been assigned of his, and I found that image. And so I think it was also the fact that there was this tie in these two different moments in my life trying to figure out my place in the world that he just kind of showed up. Um, and so I think, you know, 
my connection to him is as much about you know me making that connection as it is to the way that he ended up writing and thinking and making through a kind of rage in relationship to HIV and AIDS that um, reminded me um, of the ways it felt to be harassed as a dyke on the streets, um, the ways that it felt to watch people uh, getting you know harmed and and violated uh, for being queer, um, and I identified with that with that rage um, as well. I I have another question. If just to go back a little bit, um, I'm really curious about you know this friend that you had mentioned and this insight that we only have a few good questions that we ask in our lifetime and we just find different ways to ask them. Um, that's, that feels like a huge anchor and then looking into the works that Jan was asking about. And I wonder if you could take a stab at what questions those might encapsulate. If, if there are like a few good questions that you're asking through your work I think for me, one of the biggest questions I ask, um, I've articulated as, um, you know, what is the trouble of living in a body? Um, and I think there's a lot in my work that is about that question, whether that's about, um, you know, the ways that I try to think about and understand my mom's body and my mom's relationship to her body and my relationship to her body as she was dying and I was caring for her in uh, that that is really a big part of the focus of ground rules um, or understanding um, these shifting relationships between uh, bodies and desires and what um, can and can't be read by other people um, versus what we see in ourselves that um, I was talking about with uh, calling a wrecking ball to make a window. Um, but I think also grappling with privilege um, in my case with, with whiteness in particular and the ways that the, the whiteness that my body carries um, inscribes privileges on me that I can do everything in my power to see and understand and interrupt, um, but that I can't not have that white privilege. And so it's my obligation, I think, to be constantly aware of it um, and trying to engage it. Um, so to me, that question of, you know, what is the trouble of living in a body um, is like an invitation and also a challenge um, and also a little bit of a comfort because I have a really have and always have had a complicated, uneasy, sometimes super celebratory, but sometimes really difficult relationship to being a body in the world. Um, so that's one. I think another question that I am constantly asking through my work has to do with, um, feels a little less well formulated, but has to do with this idea of space and how we occupy spaces um, and what we build in them with one another. And I think it probably, again, I definitely err on the cheesy side, I think, but um, I think it has a lot to do with love um, and a lot to do with what we do with and for one another, um, even and maybe especially in the face of the kinds of violence that have even in my relatively privileged life, really marked my entire life. Um, so that, you know, I remember being a much younger person identifying as a, as a girl or a woman still at that time and realizing that people who identified as men and had, you know, been gendered as men didn't think about rape every day. And I did. And like, so I think those kinds of things, like how do we, how do we, 
build spaces where a that's maybe not not what folks are having to think about um but also like you know what does it mean to have that conversation and to have that sort of ground and understanding of difference that is not about um that is not about perpetuating like a kind of separation or or inevitability of lack of understanding but actually being able to sit in that and be like wow our experiences are really different um and and what do we do with that and i think that a lot of my work is just trying to wrestle with those questions it's interesting talking about bodies um if i may read a quote from call a wrecking ball to make a window um <clears throat> which is the holland tunnel breathes regular like clockwork like tunnel lungs Every day since 1927, thousands of cubic feet of soot-strewn air has risen above the tailpipes and windshields, swept up into vents by 84 high-powered fans like jet engines. And it's so interesting mentioning living in a body and that New York City is the third character in Call a Wrecking Ball, because I, I got this feeling that New York City was this breathing entity allowing us to like come and go within its i don't know robot organic <laughs> self um which felt so um uh present last week when uh two weeks ago when we were going to first record this podcast but it was you know the days when the skies in new york were you know yellow and orange with um smoke from from up north um and i guess i just wanted to i don't know if this is so much a question but um just commenting that i really got this feeling that new york city was a living body in call a wrecking ball to make a window and that we were interacting with this body um as you know as the reader and also maybe as folks living in new york city I think as I'm reading it, um, some of the text, um, as Shana said, um, engages with New York City. Um, mm -hmm. It engages with leaving New York City and then the structural nature of New York City. And um, such as the quote, like breathing, um, like this tunnel um, is like emitting pollution um, to allow um, the folks in the tunnel to um, not take in that pollution. So it's the lungs um, allowing these little car beings to exist. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess, I suppose there is a question there of, do you see New York City as a body? Um, uh, can you, Prashina, uh, give any words um, about, about that, about, um, how New York City is is like breathing and allowing movement um, within Call a Wrecking Ball. I mean I, that I pre thank you for reading that. Um, and I I that um, I learned that about those tunnels about I mean about the Holland Tunnel from uh, quote unquote I'm gonna call it research. A research trip that I went on, which was to take the Circle Line cruise around around Manhattan, um, and the the cruise 
guy guide, I guess, like the, the person who was, you know, telling us what we were looking at, talked about those tunnels, which I realized I'd always seen, but I'd never really noticed. And I certainly hadn't wondered what they did. And it made me think about yeah, just like what it takes to keep this city alive. Yeah, I think 100%, right? Like, I mean, we know that that the island of Manhattan before it was Manhattan was largely trees. Um, and so had its own kind of breathing apparatus and was probably, I don't know enough about this, but I would guess it was probably sort of a, a major um, kind of lung in its own way for this, this area geographically. Um, but I think that there's something, I mean, one of the themes I think of that book, um, and again, maybe like an echoing theme for me, um, is this idea of um, how, how people make lives and keep themselves and, and the things they love alive. And one of the other sort of um, components of that book has to do with the idea that New York City is a place where people produce or create or sustain so many different kinds of life all the time. And, and I mean human life, but not only human life. And I think there's something about New York City um, that calls for that, right? That requires it. Um, it can be a very hard place to live. Um, but that also almost like compels it, not in a bad way, like produces conditions for life in ways that I think people outside New York City maybe don't see or recognize or know or understand in the same way. And it feels to me like like the city, probably any city, but in this instance, our city here, um, you know, it, it plays its own role. It feels like a sentient being in that way. You know, I'm I'm looking at the map and call a wrecking ball to make a window, and it's <laughs> it's starting to look a little bit like a slab of meat. Um, <laughs> a, 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 you know, of Manhattan, like a leg of lamb, a lamb chop or something, and and um, maybe especially, you know, with spaces that are islands and the relationship that our bodies have with, you know, we anthropomorphize our reverse anthropomorphize ourselves as being islands like human islands and thinking about like, you know, we put food in our body, food comes out of our body and how, whether it's like um, a tunnel going in and out of the city, it's like there are ways to get in and discrete ways to get out, but there's an integrity of the island. Um, and, you know, I've just been, I've been thinking about the, oh, what is it called? The, the, the Army Corps of Engineers has proposed this huge project for Manhattan and the area to put all of these, you know, dams up, basically like blockading life from seeing the river in anticipation of this, you know, the next Hurricane Sandy that's anticipated in the next couple of years. And it just starts to feel like a situation where, you know, you're going to the doctor and there's a, an artery that's clogged. And so you're putting a stint in there to keep it open or there's there's like... Um, you know, the preservation of the resuscitation of Manhattan or the spaces that we live on that we've kind of projected these ideas. Like we, we care for these places the way we care for these bodies. And then when my mind goes there, I start to see this. So, um, the through line in all of your work, Shana, um, problematizing what it is to be in a body. As you were talking about the stent and, and that sort of relationship, I started thinking about the, I started thinking about ground rules um, and the way that I 
never expected the research I was doing into into baseball, even though I knew that I wanted it, I wanted that book to use baseball as a metaphor. What I never expected was that the stuff I ended up finding from the umpires would feel so much like talking to the doctors. Um, and I think in thinking about this idea of what becomes a body and the logics that we fall back on or rely on or um, the ways that we can conceive of intervening um, and also sort of the, the ways that at least in sort of many Western cultures, we prioritize intervening over not intervening. Your work is incredibly research heavy, it seems. And I was wondering, where do you begin? Um, what is your process? And when do you know that you're done? <laughs> um, that's a that's a fantastic question, and I'm grateful for it. Um, so I think I really I I both really like geek out and love researching things. So I I can have the problem of being like I'll just look at some more stuff before I start making anything. Um, so the the when I'm done part is is maybe a particularly vexing question, but. Um, Oftentimes, I feel like what I end up doing in my work, um, I don't know, for reasons I, I don't know exactly, is trying to put things together that don't sort of necessarily go together, right? So um, thinking about, you know, Manhattan in relationship to queerness or, um, you know, my own sort of experience as a trans person um, or thinking about baseball and cancer, um, like those kinds of things. Um, I think I think in metaphors and I think it's one of the ways that I try to make sense of things. And so because of that, things stand in for each other all the time. And I think maybe as a visual artist also, images stand in for ideas and um, you know, words stand in for images. And so there's like this kind of mix that's always happening um, as, as an idea is starting to come forward. And then I really struggle with not knowing how to actually make them go together in a way that's logical and can make sense outside my head. And that's oftentimes where like form comes in or other things. But I think to do the research, usually I end up with questions that I just quite literally don't know the answers to. Um, or I have a question of like, how do these two things go together and what could I spend time with to try to understand that better. So just using um, ground rules as an example, I had begun watching a lot of baseball before my mom was sick, um, but a lot of baseball once she was diagnosed and we would spend time watching baseball sort of together on separate coasts and then also when we were physically in the same place. And um, when she died, I became I think it's fair to say completely obsessed. Um, I read every book that she'd ever read about baseball. I read every book I could find about baseball. I, and for whatever reason, I think I was trying to make sense of this loss through this game that she had loved and that I also had a great affinity for, but I'd never played. And so I remembered that years before, maybe three or four years before, I'd watched this World Series game where I think a, a St. Louis Cardinals pitcher through, I want to say, and maybe I'm exaggerating, but I think through 12 straight, not 12, what's, yeah, 12 straight balls and walked the bases loaded, like it, consecutive yeah. batters. 
And I wrote this really short little piece about what it must be like when your whole job Mm -hmm. is to have your body function to do this thing that it then in this really critical moment just won't do. Um, and I later learned, you know, that there's a whole sort of literature about in baseball and I think in other sports about the yips, uh, which is like not being able to throw the ball or do the thing you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, um, but I was running and badly, really badly. I'm not a good runner. <laughs> so I was running and I was like, what does it mean? Like when your body just doesn't do the thing it's supposed to do anymore. And then I was like, that's it. That's how I'm gonna make work about about this thing that I've just sort of lived through and experienced and, and this way that I can't understand. I'm never going to know exactly what happened for my mom. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and so I sat down and I started, you know, making notes and all of this. And I ran out of things really quickly because I have no idea what it feels like to be a baseball player, like none. And I can't really research it. And so the metaphor just like ran short really quickly. But while I was looking at stuff, I started realizing that part of this idea of being able to control outcomes in baseball is not just about bodies, but about the spaces where baseball gets played. And so that gave me a place that I could go because you can research that till, you know, the end of time. And so I started reading about ballparks. I started reading about statistics. I started reading... Um, and thinking about what made decision-making possible in relationship to those things and slowly began to realize that what I needed to understand were a few things. I knew that the question in that book, for instance, was about making decisions. And I knew that it was about relationships. And so, and I knew that it was about trying to manage things that are outside your control but I didn't really know like in what way or what order or any of those things. And so I did a few things. I um, interviewed um, the person who had been my mom's palliative uh, nurse practitioner, um, who was amazing, um, this woman named Molly Bumpus, um, about decision-making in her field and how she thinks about decision-making. My partner, Carrie McNeil, connected me with um, her best friend, um, who is an emergency room doctor, who let me um, spend some time with her uh, talking about decision making uh, in emergency care. And then I went on a tour of a bunch of ballparks and um, was able to get connected through my stepfather's brother, Greg Johns, who was a baseball writer, to baseball park historians who kind of hang out uh, and work either formally or informally in relationship to the, to uh, baseball teams. And so I was able to like have all these conversations and that started to unlock other questions. I realized all of a sudden that weather was really important and that um, uh, that the kinds of grass that get used was important and whether there was a dome or not a dome was important, all of this for this kind of decision-making. And then that led me to the baseball um, hall of fame where I worked uh, for a couple of weeks at a, at a time, um, just going through a ton of material. And additionally, I had insights about what to look for there because I worked with this incredible research assistant um, who at the time was a a PhD student, I think, in anthropology named Randy Irwin, but who had been a college softball player. And so we were able to have these really amazing conversations about 
uh, decision-making for players and for fields and all of those things. And she pointed me to a series of things that I wouldn't have thought to look at. And that's like how we found um, the umpire letters and a handful of other things. And through that, I did a ton of reading and note-taking um, and mapping, uh, to your point, Jan. Um, and then I just sit down and write. And uh, that writing uh, sort of took shape slowly but surely. Um, into the text that, that those two texts um, for park factors and for ground rules. One thing that popped in my head as you were talking is, um, you know, you're talking about metaphors and you're talking about baseball and, you know, baseball is also a metaphor for the American dream. And within that, it's a metaphor, you know, you could potentially see this as a metaphor for white supremacy mm-hmm. or, you know, capitalism which relies on white supremacy. There is, you know, we're, we're teasing out a conversation about your work, Shana. And I think all of these ideas are, are kind of, um, in this, this large pot of, of questions that you're asking between like systems of white supremacy or inequity, um, living in a body, the continuous problem of living, living in a body, in a city, in a space, what are the rules, how to interrogate what the rules are using different sort of metaphorical spaces. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I, I, that absolutely does resonate. When I was researching this book, I was self-conscious, you know, that I was basically making a book about the loss of my mom because losing my mom sucked and I'm an artist. And so I was making something and uh, I think I was like, this feels like I'm, you know, making maybe something that's going to be too personal to be useful or effective or interesting even for a broader audience. And, you know, whatever, I was going to make it one way or the other. But as I was doing that research, I was also wrestling, not unlike, you know, wrestling with the sort of romance of uh, thinking about kind of, you know, David Wonorovich's, uh sort of particular queer moment in New York City. Um, but in thinking about how it is that this sport that is, um, you know, really deeply tied to militarism and really deeply tied, as you said, Monica, to um, white supremacy in the United States, um, you know, both organized and unorganized white supremacy, um, I was like, how is this the metaphor for this feeling of like loss and love that I am like, what, what is the complexity of, of this being the way that I am thinking about this other story um, of, you know, nursing my mom as she was dying or thinking about her own histories in the world. And I hope that it's not too haphazard the way it shows up, but in that research I was doing mostly into cancer, um, one of the things I learned from this um, really great book, um, The Emperor of All Maladies, um, was that the there are these incredible parallels between the kind of um, ongoing war making and sort of um, imperial project of the United States and the quote unquote fight against cancer. Um, And I began to really see how this story that I had was not just about 
me or my mom or Bob or whatever, trying to figure out how to make these impossible decisions uh, when you can't know everything and don't know everything and, and never will. But it was also about how we do that, um, you know, in quote unquote America um, and, and what that means in Western medicine, what that means in, uh, I mean, frankly, uh, in sort of marketing and advertising practices, what it means in sports um, and how all of that continues to both inform, but also really limit the the resources we have to deal with complex things. Um, so I think, you know, there's this, this thing that people always say about, you know, the, that people quote unquote battle cancer, um, or lost their fight or they fought hard or all those things. And I think to me, there was something really critical about drawing out this idea that like, war is war is always good and war is the thing that we have and we have wars to win them right because then when we do that everywhere that's kind of all that's left but it is also true that you know when we imagine that we can conquer everything and that that should always be our objective uh what we actually can imagine becomes so incredibly limited yeah that reminds me but of uh um the astroturf um, discussion and ground rules, like wanting a certain kind of stadium and then creating AstroTurf for it and then, or wanting a certain kind of stadium and then it affected the grass. Is that correct? And then yeah. putting AstroTurf on top of it because the grass was affected, um, <laughs> you know, like replacing a problem with a problem with a problem. Well, and what's amazing about that story of AstroTurf that, and this is part of like one of the, the terrible and wonderful things about the research I do for this, for these projects is that so much doesn't get in. So the AstroTurf was created by Monsanto, which is like a, you know, a, a essentially a, a war, uh, a war making and, yeah. and um, biological sort of industry um, uh, corporation. And they were developing it to replace grass in guess where public housing in Rhode Island. Oh, yeah. And that is where it was discovered before it became AstroTurf. So, I mean, yeah. that I think is what's sort of, you know, coming back to, to Emily Drabinsky's, like there are only one or two, you know, we all have one or two good questions that we keep coming at over and over in different ways. Like these are the kinds of things that it reminds me of that, like, you know, the, the project of undoing white supremacy and undoing capitalism is one that we can begin to see and, and imagine and, um, and come at in creative new ways from seeing the ways these things are interlocking and not just being devastated by them. You know, thinking about the baseball metaphor in the wake of your mom's passing, um, it, it just makes me think that it also has to do with love too, because your mom loved baseball for her reasons and you didn't love baseball it sounds like, you know, when, when she was alive and you had, you didn't share, it wasn't like a, a love that you guys shared. And then she was gone and you don't have your mom anymore and baseball exists. And it was something that she loved. And sometimes when we lose people, we can, you know, there's, there's something to be said about the space we can create for ourselves through understanding or building a relationship with the things that they loved. I did. I did loved baseball while she was alive, but I think that I came to watch baseball in the way that I did. Yeah, exactly. Because it was a thing that we could share that was every day. Um, when we lived far away from one another. Um, and it was, 
it was something that I'd always really like. I, I grew up watching sports, um, and so mm-hmm. I always appreciated baseball and I enjoyed it. But um, but when my mom got sick, um, it became something that we could talk about, and it meant that we could start having conversations about the players, um, about the games themselves, and mm-hmm. you know, it's I say this in the text of ground rules, but it became a way to talk every day about something that wasn't cancer, mm-hmm. um, but that had the same kind of regularity. Um, and, and yeah, I think after she died, um, it became something that I could maintain with her even when she was gone. And it wasn't the only thing, but it was a big thing. And in a weird way, it was hers and my thing. And that I think was helpful. Uh, my last question, Shanna, is what are you working on now? So right now, um, I'm working on two things. Uh, well, three, really. One is trying to find more time to make stuff. Um, but I just uh, bought a CNP 12-inch by 18-inch press, which is my first press of my own. Um, wow. And I am really excited and a little bit terrified to say that I think I'm trying to start up a little print shop. Um, yeah. And I don't know, quite know what that means yet. I think I want to be collaborating with people. Um, mm-hmm. I think I want to be putting some political work out into the world. I feel like uh, we need to be reading things and sharing things and sharing strategies. I think we're in a pretty scary moment in the world mm-hmm. that's not, you know, necessarily that much more scary than other moments that I've lived through and yet also does feel dire. Um, And I want to work with people who are trying to put stuff out in the world to help be that person who gets it out in the world. So I don't know exactly what that means yet. Um, But I did just get this press, which I'm really excited about. And I'm excited to get that up and running. Um, And in the meantime, I've been <laughs> additioning ground rules, which takes a really long time. Um, I'm down to about eight hours a book to make those. And um, and then I have this woodcut that I'm working on that's like this weird remnant of the baseball projects and that research that is um, right now an image that might become a book. I'm not sure. I'll have to show it to you all and get your feedback. But it involves the connection between the Houston Astrodome and Shea Stadium and the idea that we were talking about before of sort of U.S. imperialism um, and suburbanization uh, in the early 1960s uh, when those two ball fields were constructed. Oh, my God. That's amazing. (laughs) Well, thank you, Shana, so much. This has been incredible. I also just want to say thank you so much to you all for having me um, and for these excellent questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Bookland Calling. Um, We'll be sure to add a lot of links and fun things in the show notes uh, of the things that we've discussed. You can um, always reach out to us to questions if we forgot anything or if you want to know more about anything that Shana discussed. Um, And as always, if you're a librarian or a curator and you work at an educational institution and you're interested in collecting Shana's work or other works like it in our catalog, you can email us at hello at bookland.org. That's spelled like Brooklyn, but no R. And you can always check out our entire collection of artist books on Bookland's website. See you next time.
This podcast was made possible in part by funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and in partnership with the City Council and from individual donors to Brooklyn Inc. You can support this podcast by making a donation at brooklyn.org slash donate.